Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And it is my pleasure today to welcome two friends, James Cross, one of the co-founders of the Silicon Valley Defense Group, a 501c3 that was born in 2015 to help address the Pentagon's call for more and faster innovation across the national security enterprise. James has 25 years of Wall Street uh, experience, uh, as well as venture capital experience, uh, and uh, Sam Gray, a retired United States Navy commander uh, and legendary naval aviator who was one of the uh, co-founders and was deputy director of Naval X, uh, the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps innovation arm. He joined Silicon Valley Defense Group as its executive director a couple of years ago. Guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, as you guys are about as ideally suited to discuss the uh, defense innovation ecosystem as anybody I know, because you guys are in the business of cross-connecting the whole ecosystem. Yeah, Bago, thanks for having us out today. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, so excited to chat today. Yeah, looking forward to it, Vago. James, I want to say thanks so very much uh, for being a dedicated listener. Uh, and I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you on the program the first time, but certainly not the last time. And Sam, big kudos. James, you sound lovely, but I, I love I love the, the podcasting mic rig you've got. Well played. Thank you. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence, and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage, and GE Aerospace Sponsors uh, are Air and Naval Coverage. Um, I want to get to your guys' very first NATSEC 100 uh, list, uh, where you uh, ranked uh, sort of the, the top uh, innovative venture-funded companies uh, across uh, the ecosystem, those that have dual-use uh, technological impact. But James, I want to start with you uh, because you were sort of, you know, one of the guys in the very beginning of this, you know, Wall Street guy who wanted to sort of be a cross-connector uh, in uh, the uh, ecosystem. And I wanted to sort of get your sense, right? This effort, in some respects, uh, did begin, you know, as you said, with uh, uh, with John McCain's call, hey, we've got to do something. But it actually began a bit earlier. Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work started the Defense Innovation Initiative. I think it was in 2012 and 2014. Ash Carter gave sort of the drill lecture uh, that was sort of the starting gun uh, on, on, on this to sort of uh, get uh, the, the whole process moving. From your standpoint, what is it about this system that, is working and what are the parts of it that are not working? And Sam, in a minute, I want to get your sense as somebody who straddled the line both in and out. James, start us off. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the short story is, uh, as everyone knows, there's a lot of talking in this so-called defense innovation world. And at, at Silicon Valley Defense Group, we actually purposely separate innovation from emerging technology. We think innovation is an organizational effort, which the DOD is doing a lot of things on that are very positive doing old things, new ways, we're doing completely new things. It's an organizational thing, emerging technology and inserting it into the national security um, equipment base. That's a different thing. So just let me get that out of the way right up front. Um, Cause I think innovation means a lot of things or, and then therefore it means nothing. It's like the old revolution in military affairs. I mean, for me personally, this, this goes back farther. It, it I started defense investing in 1998. Um, and I think, I think this journey begins actually in 9-11. So I was at the Pentagon, the Thursday before 9-11, meeting with Dove Zakheim, who I think uh, is on your podcast pretty frequently. And then I go home and the planes hit. And then, um, you know, the Internet was the hottest sector the day before 9-11. The day after 9-11, Lockheed Martin stock popped 20%, I guess a week after when the market reopened. And the next three to five years, 
uh, I, I was working with a lot of my friends on Wall Street to do a bunch of financings for what we call dual use companies today. But back then we called them commercially developed military right. qualified. And the capital source was mostly Wall Street. Today we call it dual, dual use. The capital is more from the VC side. We, we could really use some strong IPO exits to solidify this category. Um, so lessons learned from allocating capital in the 01 to 05, 08 timeframe. Um, Obama declares peace in 08. There's nothing to do. The national security threat environment's calm. You know, at least on the surface, it's really not. Sequestration happens. And then uh, it turns out the threat environment is still a little bit frisky with the North Koreans, the Iranians, the cyber stuff, the Russians, the Chinese. And then I find myself sitting in Senator McCain's office in 2015, and he wants to talk about how the DOD needs to work better with Silicon Valley. So for, for SVDG, that was the day we were born. Uh, and we had the impetus of the chairman of the SAS pushing for this stuff. Uh, and I think a lot, there were a lot of, um, you know, parallel efforts being done. You talked about Bob work, the offset, we talked about setting up the IUX, uh, leadership from the Hill at times, leadership from political appointees, not a lot of leadership. Uh, it feels like out of the white house, but you've got folks like, you know, in the last administration, Hondo and Will Roper. So a lot of voices, a lot of effort as we sit here today, the purpose of the national security, uh, 100 list was to bring a quantitative element to this, uh, an ability to not, not necessarily measure it with authority, but give a platform for us to have conversations that involve data and we can analyze trends. And I think the value of the NASDAQ 100 will be over time as companies move up and down and capital flows you know, either accelerate or decelerate. And as maybe there's more revenue from the, the national security customer side towards the NASDAQ 100, or there's not. We just want to sharpen the conversation and help the policymakers, uh, you know, have some tools to think about it more effectively. Um, Sam, from your standpoint, uh, you know, James gave us a great encapsulation of sort of how it is we got here. From your standpoint, sort of what's working, what's not working uh, as we do this, right? I mean, there's a lot more talk about it. There are some deliverables. I think DIU, both under Rod Shaw and Mike Brown, uh, you know, managed to move some needles of, of taking some of the technology and matching it to needs. From, from your standpoint, what parts of this are working and what's still work in progress? Yeah, I think as, as all things, it really depends on where you sit and what you think the purpose of all these groups are. Uh, I mean, you both reference two very different missions that all of the innovation groups across the DoD tend to sort of, you know, lean to one side or the other. And one is emerging tech readiness and, you know, focus on emerging technology is your role to go out and find, you know, the technology that isn't making its hand into the warfighters, uh, into the warfighters hands. And then the other side is culture change. And every one of these innovation cells, whether it be DIU, AFWorks, NavalX, or the hundreds of others that seem to be popping on, up on almost a daily basis, they all sort of struggle with what, what is their core mission? Are they looking internal to the service that they belong to and trying to you know, manage culture change there by giving a new avenue, a new way to think about acquisitions or development of technology? Or are they looking strictly at emerging technology and how do we go find those those pockets, those companies that are doing new and amazing work and ensure that they get involved in national security work earlier. Some do, you know, I think DIU has focused very well on the latter part, the emerging technology piece. And I think some other efforts have really focused internally on the innovation side. 
And, you know, to give sort of a non-answer, you know, it really depends on what you optimize that organization for. So I think that's why we've seen a lot of sort of struggle because people on the outside will assume, well, I'm a new technology company. I'm going to go to Naval X and they're going to give me a contract to go do that. But if Naval X has no contract vehicles, uh, that's not going to be a very successful path. Um, are we, uh, James, maybe let me ask you this, right? I mean, we we, we get, and we're, we'll talk about the report in a minute. And and by the way, you mentioned both Hondo Gertz and um, and uh, we talked uh, about Mac Thornbury, who talks about really the culture change piece of it all the time. They're also affiliated with Silicon Valley uh, Defense Group. So I should just point that out uh, as, one of, uh, as, as uh, two of the very many, very smart people you guys working, uh, have working for you. James, you know, one of the things that we talk about is sort of the, the transition of the valley of death, right? I mean, you guys have so many companies uh, that are on this list that are, you know, have real capabilities, very unique. I think if you ask many people and polled them on who are the guys who sort of get it in this field, those are in that NATSEC 100, right? I mean, so the market is really voting uh, with its with its dollars. On the other hand, everybody will tell you at some point, you know, you, you can't go from Sibbers to actual deliverable stuff on the other side of that wall, right? Um, there are a lot of efforts in order to try to fix that, but are we moving any of those needles to be able to help shepherd some of these guys? I mean, I guess like there are a couple of unicorns that made it to the other side, right? SpaceX is one of them, but there are a lot of others who, you know, even though are, are well capitalized are still looking at, okay, how do I get to that other side? Yeah, I, I think there's, um, there's an issue here, which is that the actual customers and users of Emerging uh, dual use or defense tech aren't really involved in the in the innovation or emerging tech ecosystem. So the PEOs and the COCOMs and the actual users and warfighters they don't really they don't have a seat at this table. And that's something that we're putting a lot of time and effort on trying to communicate and you know doing our best to drive engagement um, with those elements. Uh, and that's that's a new effort. But I mean that's that's a lot of um, you know that's a lot of work too. That's a lot of pounding the street. One of our policy initiatives here, as we've been talking to the Hill, is saying, look, you got to get the, the real customers to the table and then business and will take its natural course. How about we give DIU more boots on the ground so they can go in bed with the PEOs and co-coms, get the market demand signals from the customers who have the budget, and then they'll go bring the, 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 you know, the, the startups, the dual use startups and their VC backers to the table as well. And then business can take its course just as nature takes its course. Why that hasn't happened yet? I don't know. I mean, I get that the PEOs are really busy. They've got budget and they've got schedule and they've got to hit those or they don't, don't get promoted. I get that. So there's got to be some cultural, and this is where innovation comes in. They got to, there's got to be some cultural leadership uh, to, to change these incentives so that program executive offices want to be at the table uh, with our community. And I, there are some thought leaders in this area and I would, uh, Chubbs, correct me if I'm wrong. I think, um, Either SDA or Space Force is making a very uh, leaning forward effort to bring a new supply base online. So in this next national security strategic launch contract set, they've got these three lanes. And one of the lanes is focused on bringing new suppliers of launch capability onto the NSSL contract, even if they haven't been to space yet. So that PEO is taking, they're taking, purposely taking risk up front to de-risk the supply base down the line. That type of thinking is still rare. But that's the type of thinking we need um, let, in let me, all the other PEOs. Um, well, I, let me just push on that, though, a little bit, right? I mean, all these PEOs and program managers attend all the trade shows. Uh, they, you know, the Andrews of the world, the Epiruses of the world are getting on their calendars. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so what is the hang up then? I've been, the- I've been a defense investor in Silicon Valley for 25 years. I've seen one PEO executive in person in the Valley in that 25 year period. So they, they don't come out here. So if they want what we have, and if you analyze the NASDAQ 100, I, this isn't about geographies. It's about the fact that about 55% of all the funding and the entrepreneurial activity in national security happens in the 650 and the 415 area codes. Right. They don't come out and they're hard to find. I mean, if you're a startup and you're not in the top 10, you probably haven't hired you know, 10 or 20 X DOD people who have relationships in the PEOs. There's not a front door. The front door ought to be down in Mountain View at DIU. You walk in that front door, they figure out what you do. Oh, yeah, there's a need for that out in Indo-PACOM. We need whatever. Here's the PEO. You, you go in that room and you have a meeting with the PEO rep that sits in the valley. And then DIU's got somebody sitting out in Hawaii or wherever it is in the, in the COCOM's offices. And you build that connectivity down you know, at the functional level. That's, I think that's what we need to see to get this operational. Uh, Sam, before we uh, get uh, to the list itself, let me just quickly ask you uh, one question, right? I mean, you guys have matched, um, right? I mean, ultimately, it's about the problems you solve, right? So, you know, DIU does a great job of sort of finding a technology that scratches an itch. But at the end of the day, it's about solving problems. And one right. of the challenges the department has is it, it has a lot of problems that it needs to sc- solve at scale, right? I mean, so one of the things you frequently hear is, oh, that's really great. These are nice little boutique guys, but at the end of the day, I've got to move sort of b- b- big, big needles. From your standpoint, and you guys have tried to match, right, the r lists and everything else, but from your standpoint, what are the big problems that need solving that the community can, uh, the innovation community can help the department solve? At the end of the day, if, I mean, if you I can think, get in front of the right people to do it, of course. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the major issue is structural, right? Is that there's this there's this jump from the six one six three very early sort of R and D, you know, seven figure at best type contracts to the multi billion multi year contracts and. As James was sort of pointing out by saying, you know, the the PEOs are not the ones showing up in the valley. You know, it's it's DIU and DIU until this year was reporting to R&E. They were much more focused on the prototyping phase and getting things that were sort of new and novel. But I think this ecosystem and the companies that are playing, as you mentioned, a couple of them with Andrew and Epris, you know, the proverbial Sharpies, uh, you know, these companies are growing very, very quickly. That is the nature of venture-backed companies. They are optimized for rapid, rapid growth. The the structural mechanisms inside DoD have not really kept up to be able to catch those and carry them through. And it's almost exacerbating the valley of death at this point, where you go from wild success in the prototyping phase, and there's really not a lot to carry you through to when you're ready to do, you know, thousands of widgets that you're pumping out every month. It, it'd be the equivalent of if, you know, the, the MLB farm system had the majors and then they had like spring ball, like basically straight out of high school, but they had like one or two triple A teams and that would have to feed all of the major leagues. Like that structurally would not work. Basically the funding mechanisms that we have set up are the same thing. There's very, very few mechanisms to write 
tens of millions and low hundreds of millions. And that's where a lot of these companies get, get hung up. So it's not as important about the technology itself as the structure. As you said, there's so many different technologies, so many other problems to be solved. The structural piece is what we focus on at SVDG to ensure that there is a pathway as these companies are growing, that they don't have to wait three, five, seven years to get into the big programs, which is the phase that they're in now. Um, I'm I'm going to uh, ask you, uh, Sam, to sort of give takeaways from the report. James discussed it in a minute. James, I'm going to come to you in a minute about picking winners and losers, because I think that's a tremendous uh, point and, and something that we've talked about in, in the past. But Sam, what are sort of the key takeaways that folks, uh, right, everybody can go online and, and read the report, but, but just real quick for folks who are listening, what are kind of the key takeaways that folks should bear in mind, right? A hundred companies, $42 billion uh, in capital is, is what they've gotten. Obviously the folks like SpaceX get, you know, a lot more capital than everybody else on that list do, but, but even some very small companies have had access to a lot of resources. Um, walk us through what sort of the key takeaways are. So one of the biggest was what we were trying to highlight is that finding information on these companies is very, very difficult because they are privately held companies. They don't have the same reporting requirements that a Lockheed Martin, a Boeing, or a Raytheon all have, where we can go and we can see, okay, you know, what what was their revenue last year? Like you can't get that on private companies. So we had to use a different metric to to kind of show the the success of the companies. And one of the main ones we used was headcount growth. And that's going to you know fluctuate a little bit by company, whether they're doing deep tech or software, but it is something where we could have comprehensive data on these companies of how quickly they were growing. But we really wanted to highlight that this is this is going to have to take professionals, people inside DoD who speak this language and understand that the venture ecosystem and the private ecosystem overall is something that you have to learn that language and you have to spend time in. It's a relationship-driven ecosystem to overuse that word, but like it's a culture of sharing information only with those that are very trusted on the inside. And DOD can be one of those trusted organizations because they are such an important customer to it. But to that point, kind of the major takeaway we put at the beginning is yes, it's $42 billion invested in these 100 companies. On an annual basis, we estimate about two to $5 billion that DOD is directly putting into those companies. And that's fine. That's actually normally done in growth markets because you're betting on this, this market going up, but it has to go up. I think that's the point is if, if these companies don't see that number significantly increase, you're not going to see IPOs. You're not going to see successful exits. And the secondary effect of that will be that $42 billion will start to shrink. You'll see less and less investment by professionals like James that are doing this every day. Um, so, James, let me uh, bring you back into this, right? I mean, one of the points you guys make is that the government needs to sort of get over this reluctance, this absurd reluctance to pick winners and losers. You know, everybody says this, but at the end of the day, the government is picking winners and losers every single day um, by not picking McDonnell Douglas uh, and advancing it in the Joint Strike Fighter competition. It sent the company into a merger with Boeing uh, at the end of the day, right? I mean, so folks understand these are existential decisions. Uh, the department is making. What, you know, what does the government need to bear in mind to make better choices? And why, what's the imperative for the government to put money behind these choices? Because at the end of the day, right, the government is urging everybody to innovate, go ahead and do it. And then it's not picking any of the innovators often. So, okay, that's, you know, that's a say-do gap that is a red flag for any investor. 
Yeah, one of the uh, points we've been trying to make to policymakers is that you basically asked for an emerging tech buffet to be put out. So here it is. It's got 100 dishes on the menu this year. Uh, and now you're just playing with the food and not eating it and paying the bill. So this magical emerging tech buffet that the private markets have funded and put before you, it's not going to be there forever if you just keep playing with your food and don't actually eat any of it. So, I mean, one of the benefits I think of the NATSEC 100 list is over time, like next year, we're, we're pretty sure like three or four or five of these companies are just going to disappear. And is that a big deal? No. In venture, you know, you do you you look at 100 deals to do one, you put together 10, 20, 30 companies in a portfolio, and you know some of them are going to be zeros. So our community is fine with that. Uh, I, I don't think the policy world is used to their suppliers disappearing overnight because they run out of cash. So I think like next, next year and the year after, we'll probably highlight like these three to five, six, seven companies they went out of business. Is that a good or bad thing for national security? It probably doesn't matter at the micro level. But at the macro level, you're trying to attract all this new capital. It kind of does matter uh, from a policy level. And I mean, as, as I look at it, the, the, the one, two, three billion that's, that's kind of in DOD revenue or IC revenue for these companies, it's, it's nice, it's cute. Well, let's put it in the big picture context. The national security budget annually, it's about a trillion dollars, right? If you add up DOD plus the IC plus whatever pieces of state and USAID and, and soft power stuff, it's a trillion. And, and Homeland Security, which is a lot yeah, of Yeah, DHS, yeah, and, right. and Coast Guard. So out of that trillion dollars, how much of it probably should go to what we call fresh tech? And I'm just simplifying here. So new technology that got developed inside of a, a traditional acquisition cycle. So we say the acquisition cycle is five years. What percentage of national security should pr probably needs tech that, that got developed inside a five-year time frame? Well, it's more than 0.03%, which is all we're spending now. It's probably more in the one to two, maybe three, five percent range. So that number going to the NASDAQ 100 or other sources of, again, fresh tech probably needs to be in the 10 to 25, maybe $50 billion a year, just from like an, a, a structural model perspective. If you don't do that, and you're just depending upon the traditional sources of technology development, the labs and the primes and IRAD and CRAD and all this stuff. We're guaranteeing that we're always going to be three to five years late beyond, you know, behind our adversaries who are adapting emerging technology much faster. So from a like a macroeconomic model, the one to three billion here doesn't make any sense from a national security urgency standpoint. Sam? Yeah, I think James is pointing out a, a really important point of, you know, the, the dollar figures here are, they're of course significant anytime you're saying billion, um, but in this scale of a budget, you know, right. you're still going to need to go out and buy the aircraft carriers, the tanks, the planes, the traditional defense tools. Like in no way are we advocating you need to drop buying, you know, huge numbers of all of those things, but you still need that, you know, the slight edge that some of these capabilities are going to give you will make, will be the difference makers, right? I mean, we're seeing that play out live in Ukraine right now. The, right. the battlefield is still very traditional. It's 155 howitzers going off, you know, every second constantly. It's, it's almost trench warfare, but it, a lot of it is being empowered by that thousand dollar drone that they're losing by the dozens every minute. So you know, these capabilities are a hedge. And I think that's exactly what the Hask just put out in their paper is, is creating a hedge portfolio that looks at where do we need to double down, triple down, 
and say, yes, this is actually going to be a difference maker for future conflicts that we want to prepare for. And how do we you know, keep that system energized? Emerging Tech Readiness, the paper we wrote before the NATSEC 100 was all about that, of just how do you keep that cycle going? So when you do recognize that large language models suddenly have a dramatic impact and are something that we're going to want to leverage for national security, you're already embedded and working with those. You know who the best, fastest growing companies are, and then you can start pumping real money to get real capability out of those companies. The 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 real, I mean, the, this was uh, sort of a long running uh, frustration, so I will air it uh, again at the risk of sort of boring the audience with it. You know, when we did DIUX, it was with too little money. DARP, you know, Dwight Eisenhower knew that DARPA would be a force because it would be really funded and had an ability to direct a lot of resources. Uh, InQtel is effective because it has access to a lot of resources. You guys note that in your report, actually, in terms of being sort of a leading government in a, investment arm. Uh, and, and, you know, every successful company has InQtel DNA in it, uh, ultimately. Uh, James, you know, what do, the Pentagon has created a trusted capital program. It's a lot more serious in this iteration than it was uh, in, in uh, the last version of it. it. Is this a step in the right direction of, of getting us to where we need to be? Because the, even though that is more of sort of a clean capital mechanism to sort of get Chinese investment dollars out of it, is that something that you think is ultimately helping, not helping i mean how do we need to look at this because i honestly i talked to a chinese investor many years ago uh, not that long ago and he said just give me a fund i'll put money in it i'm into making money i, I don't need to know the proprietary secrets of these companies you know and i was like so you'd actually invest he's like look at the end of the day i'm no different than anybody else i just want to make money i don't need to have access to the technology i'm willing to put money into it which i thought was kind of an interesting, an yeah, interesting I mean, I, yeah i mean yeah uh uh but that's married by American guys who, you know, who, who worry about China all the time, but their companies have a lot of money invested in China. So that's what I, I was going to say. This is a geoeconomic um, national security competition we're in now. It's not geopolitical. The one, the Cold War against the Soviets, that was purely geopolitical because they didn't have an economy. We didn't trade with them. We didn't have factories in Moscow making widgets for our cars. This is a new, more complicated competition. And a vast aspect of it is in the business domain and the financial markets domain. So, I mean, that's, and that's, that's kind of why we started Silicon Valley Defense Group. We want to help the policymakers get up the learning curve as fast as they can about what was not previously a domain of national security competition. You know, the stock market and the venture capital market didn't matter as much against the Soviets. Now it does. Uh, and you don't have officers making their career off of waging war in the financial markets, but you kind of need that now. Um, and we've spent some time talking to like National Defense University, Eisenhower School, Naval Postgraduate School, working on this stuff. Part of the long game is building out a cadre of you know, mid-level career, uh, you know, uniform folks and the civilian workforce who understand the nuances around the capital, the private capital markets, the public capital markets, PE versus VC, that sort of thing. We need that over the long term, right? And that's something I think Congress should be funding and the DOD needs to embrace. So, I mean, it's a little bit of a tough issue. And adversarial capital, I got to say, it's, it's kind of been overdone. And they, they chased all the Chinese money out of the valley. Like, it's just pretty much gone. Nobody really takes Chinese money. And the, and the, the, the intelligence agencies and the FBI, you know, counter, counter off, counter CI office out here, 
they do a great job. I mean, they chase down anything that's kind of popping its head up. But, you know, we got rid of most of it and everybody knows you shouldn't take it. I think the reason the DOD really likes the adversarial capital idea is because it's easy. It's playing defense. It's You don't have to pick winners. You don't have to allocate a bunch of capital. You don't have to get Lockheed and Raytheon the primes kind of going up against the, the startups. This is an easy issue. Everybody agrees on it. It doesn't take a lot of staff to go do it. That, that's why I think they did it. They did a great job. It needed to happen. We were We were telling people on the Hill five years ago, you're missing a big issue here. The Chinese have bought up massive positions in the video games and the social media companies. And Congress is like, well, that doesn't matter. Well, today we all talk about, we all hand ring about TikTok being in, the, in everybody's living room. We could have known that following the Capitol five, seven years ago when Chinese companies were buying up, you know, half of Epic Games and buying a piece of Activision and they were buying up all these other Supercell, the other video game companies. And then they were going to get pieces of of social media companies like this was all happening in full view so right. it's the adversarial capital initiative is very positive because we've got our eyes wide open we're awake but i think that's necessary but not sufficient that doesn't close the funding gap it doesn't bring new sources of supply into the national security supply chain right all it does is solve one problem but it doesn't win the war um sam let me uh, ask you uh the question about innovation theater right i mean any any time there's, you know, a focus on anything, it creates sort of a bubble. Uh, and there was this innovation bubble, uh, as my producer and I, producer jokes all the time, you're right, you have to put the mayonnaise in the tuna fish. Ooh, wow, that's real wisdom. No, it's not. Uh, you know, right. it, there, so there was a lot of theater. If you had a slide deck, you were basically going to get uh, some some money uh, at, at the end of the day. The, the, you know, the bubble still, though, can leave you stuff uh, sometimes, ultimately. Are we over the theater uh, and what are the keys to sort of sifting the wheat from uh, the, the chaff? And I've got to follow up on James on this because he's been sifting wheat from chaff for <laughs> maybe a couple of more years on the financial side of things. But from your standpoint, in terms of sort of ideas, right, are we, are we at a slightly different place now where it's sort of the more, more serious folks are the ones who are left over? I think I think the mechanisms and the organizations have grown and gotten better. I mean, part of this is you have to understand there's always going to be a certain amount of theater that comes with budgets this large, protect, particularly, you know, anything associated with national security defense is sort of shiny and interesting. And there's drones and submersibles and, um, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of theater with that. And it's not only in the defense investing space. There's theater in, in all corners of investment. The, the real issue is when it's only theater, right? When that's the only activity going on is sort of photo ops and people just want to be seen in a garage with, you know, people with blue hair and mohawks that are, you know, working on cybersecurity. And then there's no actual kind of movement into the more serious side of the discussion. So theater in itself is not terrible. You just need to actually move past that as quickly as possible into, you know, the more serious spaces. I do think there has been um, a change as far as, you know, seven years ago, 2015, like innovation theater was sort of all the rage and everybody wanted to go see startups, right? It was like, let's go be seen with startups. The Navy has to be seen with as many startups as the Air Force and vice versa. Uh, and now we've actually seen a pivot to, uh, venture theater of like, you know, all the senior folks want to go meet with VCs, you know, talk with VCs. That's sort of like the newer space to be in. Um, one of the side benefits that comes from this 
is a better understanding of how those groups are actually structured. What are they optimized to do? It's one of the big things we talk in, in the paper is that venture-backed organizations are built, they're optimized for speed and scale. And there's plenty of other privately held companies that do wonderful things that you know bootstrap themselves up. But what venture does is just fire hose money in in the replacement of what you would have to do through traditional revenue and allows them to grow very, very quickly. So I think as more senior policymakers start to understand the subtle differences between the early stage investors, mid-stage investors, private equity folks, and Wall Street, I think there will be some benefit to just spending that time together and better understanding each other's requirements. And it's a two-way street. I think all those investors need to really understand the defense market because there's a whole lot of them that really don't. Uh, James, uh, you're quick on that, uh, take on that. And I've got one uh, last uh, follow-up, which I'm going to direct to James as well. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I part of the emerging tech readiness, it's, it's a three-point kind of long-term effort. And, 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 and I think point two is the connectivity. So I agree with Sam, getting, getting people together in the room does have value. And whether it's just performative and, you get a nice eight by 10 glossy out of it. That's great. But you are building relationships and understanding. So to the extent we can, we support that. And we, we put on events, both kind of in the track one and track two lane. So I, I, we don't have a problem with innovation theater. It, it, and I think Sam's right. If you spend time in um, the investing world, everything has a hype cycle. Everything's got its own like sideshows and theater going with it. So that's right. That's normal. I mean, on the investment side, like we're used to this. It doesn't 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 make anybody upset. It just means there's a lot of activity happening in a sector. Um, let me uh, ask you one last uh, question, which is access uh, to capital. As I as I said earlier, before, if you had a slide deck, you'd get money. People were throwing dumb money, lots of dumb money after more dumb money. Whereas then it everything sort of tightened up, and even the legitimate guys were having trouble getting money. That prompted Dr. Heidi Shu, uh, the uh, uh, head of research and engineering, to propose making funding available for companies that couldn't raise money. Um, and there were those who said that was really illogical because, you know, you know, if you have a good idea, you'll, you'll get money for it. What's that venture capital access like now? Is it freeing up? And are the deserving companies uh, and and even the new startups that are there's you know that are popping up that actually may have a better mousetrap, are they getting access to capital or is is her idea of making that money available something important that there are good ideas that are not attracting capital that should get the government involved in it? Yeah, this is a this is a complicated issue. I've got two two lines of thought here. One, if you look in the report, I mean the amount of capital raised is has plummeted. So I think we've got 2021, the dual use market raised about 15 billion. Year to date, it's raised about 2 billion. So that's an issue. Uh, now we look at last year, Andrew and SpaceX had the two largest financing rounds in venture land. So that's a positive signal. But as we look at it this year and going forward, I think it will be tougher, uh, mostly because the government not, is not coming through on the revenue side. So it's in a sense, I, I think we agree with Heidi. There should be a mechanism, whereas the government can can become sort of a synthetic investor in companies to buy more time. So if the government's paying for the company's time because they really want to put revenue on the company, but it's going to take two or three years. That makes sense. If the government's putting synthetic capital and, you know, not dilutive, whatever, you can pick a more complicated term, but it serves. If they're doing that because they're trying to keep companies alive 
that are struggling to raise and are struggling with their commercial traction, that's a bad move. And, and, and that's where the winners and losers things come, comes to play. So if we go through cycles where the market's just closed, I think the DOD should be ready to step up. In the early phases of COVID, the first two or three months, we, were, uh, we had our hair on fire. We were calling everybody we knew on the Hill saying, look, if the financing market's closed down, you're going to lose a lot of these emerging tech, defense tech startups. You might want to run around. And we actually like we worked on this with the Navy specifically. Get a list of the 20 startups you care about the most and at a minimum monitor them. And if some of them are having issues and they're either going to have to take adversarial capital or go bankrupt, you might want to step in if you really value what they're doing and you just need more time to buy it. So, again, we need some we need some thoughtful strategy around this. And part three of the emerging tech readiness system is the third one is the tools have the tools in place to close these gaps if it makes sense, but don't try to close all the gaps for everybody. And if the market goes against you, scale that fund, whether it's AppFit or the hedge fund or whatever, if the market's closed for two years, scale it up to a billion dollars and make sure the ones you want, you keep them alive when the market's reopened, scale the fund back down, but have the fund existing ahead of that crisis. Guys, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. James, I'm sorry it's taken so long uh, to get you on the program. Thanks again for being uh, a dedicated listener and look forward to this being your first, but certainly not the last. Uh, and would love to have you guys on more uh, regularly to give us uh, updates. You guys do terrific work. You've got a, a great team, uh, Bill Greenwald, Josh Marcuse, uh, a lot of Chris Dardy, a lot of very, very smart uh, folks on the team. Uh, and it's really admirable what you guys are trying to do, which is kind of the honest broker cross connector uh, in this ecosystem. So thanks very much for doing uh, a difficult job at an important time. And we look forward to continuing to tell the story. Thanks so much. Awesome, Vago. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Vago. It's been fun.